This is a GRDC podcast. Hi there, I'm Hilary Sims. Ironstone gravel soil accounts for around 3 million hectares of cropping area across Western Australia, and it's also found in South Australia and Victoria. If it's in your paddocks, it can be a massive handbrake on yield, and it's been largely overlooked as a research topic until now. A significant and ambitious GRDC investment on ironstone gravel has spent the past couple of years delivering new insight on the chemical composition of different gravel types. The focus is now switching to on-farm trials to give growers practical information on how to better manage ironstone gravel soils from a cropping, nutrition and water perspective. In this podcast, we'll hear from two growers about their challenges and experience managing ironstone gravel soil. They have distinctly different approaches and stories to tell, but share a desire to get the most out of their crops in a high rainfall environment. But to start off, I caught up with the project lead to learn more about the research that will help growers boost this underperforming soil type. So it's quite an unusual project. No one's really studied gravel in this level of detail before, particularly on such a wide geographical area and using all these really kind of high spec techniques. That's Dr. Francesca Brailsford. She's part of the Einstein Gravels research team at Murdoch University, based in Perth. I'm the current team lead of phase two, but I was also a big part of phase one's research, which really just aimed to explore the different gravel types around both WA and interstate, looking at characterising the different gravel types, their properties, how they interact with nutrients and water, and then what consequences that has for growing crops. What were some of the key findings coming out of this phase one research? The main take-home point is that not all gravels are the same. They have wildly different properties and it's really going to impact differently how your soil responds to both fertiliser and water, whether or not it can retain those in the soil profile or not, and how well your crops are then going to grow. And what is this next phase of research, the phase two of the research, aiming to achieve? And how will it be different to phase one? So it's really a lot more of an applied project, sort of the phase where we put our knowledge into practice. So we're going to be doing glasshouse trials and then moving on to field trials, both looking at how different crops fare across the different gravel types, but also whether or not different chemical and engineering solutions can improve crop yields on gravel soils. The research that's been done so far, has there been anything that's surprised you? I think just the extreme nature of how much fertiliser, for example, can be bound up within these gravels. We found particularly with iron-rich gravels, you can keep paddling fertiliser and you won't hit a point of saturation where it will stop binding to the outside. So there's some really complex chemistry going on there on the surface of the gravels where phosphorus just gets stuck and it's quite hard for the plant to then access. So it may look like you have a lot of phosphorus in the soil, but what's actually available and usable is actually quite low. So when you speak to growers and you tell them about the research, what's a common question that you get from them on the topic of ironstone gravel? Frequently it's what specific fertiliser recommendation can you offer me, which is very challenging. We found, as I mentioned, that gravel can be quite variable and then the response to these different issues can also be quite varied, but we've tried to narrow it down into different gravel types. So there's three, the iron, silica and aluminium dominated gravels. So that hopefully in the future, there'll be a relatively simple diagnostic where you can quickly chemically see which one you've got and therefore you'll have a suite of recommendations available to you. And that would be the end goal. Something for the future to aim for. So what 
would be your final key messages for growers on the research so far, but also looking forward now to this phase two of the research? So, so far, I think just highlighting that that diversity of gravel is really apparent, um, even anecdotally from speaking to growers, there's very mixed responses depending on what mitigation they're trying to put into place to improve their soil. And a lot of this now, when I speak to people, makes sense when you compare it to the chemical data that we've now gathered with this data set that has over 300 different samples in it. I think going forward, I would just want growers to know that we're actually putting this information into practice now. We're looking at real world solutions that can be applied and putting a lot of effort into doing the glasshouse and field trials so that we can start to see results. Our first grower is Mark Modra. Mark farms with his family on the picturesque coastline of the Lower Eyre Peninsula in South Australia. It's a mixed farming operation with a legume canola wheat rotation. Roughly three quarters of the property has ironstone gravel soils. Mark starts by describing his soil profile. Buckshot soils basically have three horizons and the top 20 centimetres is our topsoil obviously and that consists of a sandy loam soil and it's actually quite a a workable and and handy soil, it's slightly acidic and we do need to um, lime every few years but this soil wets up nicely and is easy to work and easy to get on after a rain so it's a beautiful topsoil. Underneath that is our problem soil and that's our ironstone buckshot gravel and that drains water beautifully. We get uh, quite wet here in winter so it drains away generally speaking quite well but in that drainage issue it also drains a lot of nutrients through, particularly things like nitrogen from nitrogen fertiliser. And the depth of this soil is probably anywhere from 20 centimetres and up to a metre in places but usually around 40 centimetres in depth. And underneath that layer, this gravel layer, is what we call a lateritic type clay. So we've got quite a handy soil in a rainfall that's 450 to 500 mils rainfall that I believe is being underutilised. We can grow some pretty handy crops of canola. Two and a half, three tonne of canola is not uncommon. But the rule of thumb with canola versus cereal growing is that you can grow double the cereal crop that you can canola. So we should be able to grow five or six tonne of wheat. But we're nowhere near that. We're you know, probably three to four tonnes. So we're trying to look at ways that we can improve the moisture holding capacity of these soils and nutrient holding capacity. We've had some work done by Andrew Ware, who was working for the leader group at the time, or REP, which has taken over that group, and did a bucket measurement of that soil and found out that it only holds 25 mils of moisture from full to empty, which is not a lot, particularly when you think about a spring when plants are using four to eight mils of moisture a day. It can empty that bucket in under a week. So it's been problematic. We've had crops that look really good late spring and we think, oh, yep, we'll put a bit more nitrogen on and push them along a bit and then we find out that we have uh, no more rain in spring and the whole lot falls over. So, yeah, there's a real gap there, you know, opportunity missed. And Mark, what's your approach to managing this challenging soil type? What management practices have you tried on your property over this time? We've tried to look at ways that we can rip or delve or improve that subsoil base. I guess it's been twofold. That's one of them. The other one is the management strategy of trying to manage what we've got here and now. And perhaps I'll start off the here and now. And one of them is not to get too ambitious 
not to push our cereal crops too much at the end of the season because undoubtedly we often get come undone. And the second part of that is to use organic nitrogen, try and keep legumes in the system, whether it be grain legumes like lupins or clover. So that's sort of managing what we've got. But moving forward, we've played around with ripping over a number of years and we've had some really good results, but also some really disappointing results. So usually the first year we get a result and that's usually mineralisation of or access to nutrition under the compaction pan. But what we want to do is make it last longer than one year because it's an expensive operation. So sometimes our best results been about 12, 15 years of continual results. The other side of that is you know, only one year's benefit and next year you can't see any difference. So we've done everything from delving, bringing up a fair bit of clay, which is something we don't want to do in these soils. Um, we've done just plain ripping. We've done ripping with spading but we can only get down about 35, 40 centimetres max depth. And then we've tried putting a lot of stuff down at depth with that. So things like gypsum, lime sand, trace elements and humic acid and, you know, you name it, we've tried it, all that sort of stuff. And it does work, you know, but what we're finding that works probably the best at the moment is using inclusion plates behind our tine. So we want to crack open the top of that clay, that cowcrete layer, open that up, drop topsoil and organic matter in through that slot. So then it holds that slot open because if we don't and just rip, we found that a wet year will just make that clay tend to slake, become like soup, and it just sets hard again. So if we can get some organic matter down into that bottom of that slot, we can hold it open, roots can access the nutrients and moisture at depth. So that's where we're at at the moment. And we obviously try and put some nutrition down that slot as well, including lime sand, because some of our soils, the pH seems to be lower at depth than it is at the top. And we've got to get that lime sand to move down at depth. And that's been a problem as well. It doesn't tend to naturally percolate down through the soil profile as what we first thought. What sort of impact on production have these amelioration practices have? Yeah, it's been varied, but we're looking at uh, 0.4 to a tonne yield increase, and that's quite significant, particularly if you've got an average yield of, you know, three to four tonnes of cereals. With beans, we found that quite substantial, that yield increase, and I think that's not just about loosening up the subsoil at depth, but it's about getting lime down at depth. Beans like IPH and their soils tend to be naturally acidic, and while we could grow lupins on these soils, lupins are quite profit resistant. So beans seem to be more uh, an option in that respect. And beans can also handle the wetter conditions that lupins can't. So, you know, if we can get them to work over a long term, I think it can be quite profitable for us. And what sort of information do you think, Mark, would help you manage these soils better? Where do you think the knowledge gap is at the moment that you'd be keen to see addressed? Mm, it's a good question. I think there are a lot of knowledge gaps. Firstly, I don't think we understand what the ideal profile is. Not that we can change a lot of it that much, but at least to know what the ideal is. And then it would be good to be able to map subsoils, to be able to know where the different horizons are. And we don't even have the technology for that, or to my understanding anyway. You know, gamma radiometrics don't work, EM38 mapping still the same, ground penetrating radar works to a degree, but it's not really on a commercial scale. And then on top of that, you know, what is the best system for these soils? You know, there's been a lot of work done with delving, a lot of work done with spading on different soil types, and it's fantastic. They've achieved great results, but 
it doesn't seem to work that well on these soils. So getting a system that works well on these soils and then working out how often we need to do it. What have been some of the main learnings for you around ironstone gravel soils and something that you wish you knew when you were starting out? Yes, I wish I knew that. Not to be too ambitious, I've wasted a lot of urea and turned a lot of good crops into screenings over the years. I've learnt not to apply too much N at once. You can get away with it some years, but often uh, you get a large rainfall event and you can lose a lot of that nutrition throughout the soil and down the creeks, and that's certainly something we don't want to do. I've learnt that there's always compromise. You think you've got one way of doing things and you try and go down that path and there's always a compromise involved, you know, whether it be controlled traffic in that system or whether it being, oh, yeah, I've got this system working well on this plot so it must replicate over the whole farm. So one thing doesn't fit well for just one paddock. You have to look at the whole farming system and compromise with whatever you're doing. Our second grower is Mark Fowler. Mark manages Yarrabin Farms, a mixed farming enterprise with his wife, Latricia, their three kids and Mark's parents, Doug and Jenny. They farm in six different locations across medium and high rainfall zones in Western Australia's Grain Belt. I caught up with Mark at a property at Williams, where the main soil type is a white gum gravel. To start... I asked him what the main cropping challenges are with this gravel. Here's Mark. If I had to summarise, I'd say the principal challenges were around nutrient fixation, principally in relation to phosphorus, non-wetting issues, also lots of root challenges in terms of aluminium levels in the soil, root disease and compaction, and issues relating to trafficability, just actually getting on the paddocks at the critical stages of the year. And so let's talk first then about nutrient fixation. Tell me more about your experience with this on your property and how your management of this challenge has changed over time. I think it's one aspect of this soil type that's so different and unique compared to others, the way in which it ties up phosphorus. And in times of high phosphorus pricing, that's a pretty significant factor. We've dealt with it historically by using high rates of phosphorus to start with, notwithstanding soil test results, which have mostly been Colwell P testing. We've also done DTG testing, but we're usually around that 20 units of applied phosphorus across our cropping program. We manage it also by keeping our pHs up quite high. We're at five and a half to six and a half down to 30 centimetres just to optimise the availability of that phosphorus. We use precision seeders so that we can ensure that we get the best bang for buck out of the fertiliser that we have. We use wetting agents at seeding to ensure that those nutrients are in solution and available to plants as much as possible. I guess another way we manage that is also through use of section control on our sprayer, our seeder and our spreaders so that we're not wasting what's in a very, very expensive resource and needs to be targeted. We'd rather save that for using at high rates as evenly as we possibly can. And so another big issue that you mentioned is its non-wetting characteristic. Tell me a bit about that and how you choose to manage that on farm and what's worked for you. Look, I'd say non-wetting is a serious challenge. It's probably not as bad as in some forest gravel types. Being The white gum's got quite a high level of clay, so it wets reasonably well but it still remains a challenge like we end up with patchy germination of crops sometimes particularly around trees you might see a deferred germination of weeds it can compromise the effectiveness of your pre-emergent herbicides and we know we might have some nutrient loss via runoff via erosion or denitrification 
it's made worse because we dry seed most of our program almost every year. So we're stratifying those different soil fractions all the time. So how do we manage it? With canola, we use a single row, whereas cereals, we aim to use a paired row. With a single row, we're concentrating that wetter with the seed as much as possible, getting as much value out of that as we can. We use high seeding rates, so we have a greater chance of intercepting moisture. We seed deeper than most people do. We push the envelope a bit in that regard, trying to put the seed in reliable moisture where we're less likely to be in the, that friable, dry part of the soil, particularly when we're seeding into marginal moisture. We use a protracker to seed on row or on the edge of the row, depending on which crop preceded it. We use a precision seeder so that we can create a large, deep furrow which maximises water harvesting. Our seeder has hydraulic packer pressure, which is independently variable compared to the leading time the fertiliser time, and that enables us to maximise the pressure to improve seed-soil contact. And recently, one of our seeders, we've trialled moving to a 12-inch spacing so that we concentrate the fertiliser in wetter on a per-row basis. We use low-rake angle points, which we have found, and I think research supports the conclusion that it, it cultivates the soil rather than fractures it and leads to less non-wetting fines finding their way to the drill row around the seed. We retain stubble where we can, to retain that moisture, although I recognise that decaying stubble also contributes to the the non-wetting situation and we band as much of our fertiliser as we can so that we don't lose that by runoff. So the next step, the intention is to ameliorate the soil, but it's just a matter of making sure you have all the information before you sort of go down that path. That's definitely it, but there are a couple of other strands to that. Firstly, the elephant in the room in this part of the world is trafficability. If we ameliorate our paddocks, and can't get on them, well, that's going to be counterproductive. So we've got to work out how we're going to do that, where we do it. The other aspect is submerged rock and things like that. Typically, ironstone gravel comes with a degree of submerged rock, so we need machinery that's robust enough to be able to handle that. And then what do you do with the fallout that occurs afterwards with a paddock that looks like a moonscape? What knowledge gap would you like to see filled to help you make the most out of your soils? I think the gaps that we have at the moment relate to the areas that I've just mentioned. I think I have the sense that gravels are an understudied soil type, yet they do cover quite a large bit of the WA grain belt. So it's really good to see that there's a renewed focus on this, both via the GRDC gravel project and also the DPIRD trial that's going on at mine and other farms at the moment to try to understand this fairly complex and unique soil type. Most of those gravels are in high rainfall zones where we might be getting 475 to 550 mils of annual rainfall. On that sort of rainfall, we should be hitting yield numbers that are more like six, seven tonne of cereals and two and a half to three and a half tonne of canola reliably. There's got to be an opportunity there to hit the bigger numbers with the rainfall that we have. And I think these projects are hitting the nail on the head in terms of trying to find the choke points or the reasons why we're unable to realise those big numbers. And I think that all lies around nutrient availability. It lies around compaction and ways of dealing with that compaction and it partly relates to disease. If we can address those three factors then I think we'll be able to make a big step change forward in that regard. That was Williams grower Mark Fowler and before him was Air Peninsula grower Mark Modra and Dr Francesca Brailsford from Murdoch University. The Einstone Gravel Soil Project is part of a Soils West Alliance initiative, which also includes the University of Western Australia, Department of Primary Industries and Regions, South Australia, Queen's University, Belfast, 
and Bangor University. More information on this topic can be found in the description box of this podcast or online at grdc.com.au. I'm Hilary Sims, and you've been listening to a GRDC podcast. <laughs>